are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm Rob McClure. Effervescent, literary, corrosive. These adjectives describe the work of Adjective New Music co-founder Jamie Lee Sampson. Jamie is a composer, bassoonist, and author of the book Contemporary Techniques for the Bassoon, Multiphonics. Most recently, her work was selected for performance at the Women's Composers Festival of Hartford, and she has been commissioned by a consortium of players to write a new saxophone concerto. Our conversation centers on her works for voice and two works for saxophones. So I wanted to ask you a question first about your, about your female vocal quartet that you wrote for Quince. Um, it's called uh, Concealed Imaginings. Yes. Um, looking back through through your list of works, um, pieces for voice have been pretty much a constant throughout your career. So they have. Can you can you talk about your relationship to the voice and and why you keep coming back to it, and specifically the female voice? Absolutely. I, I think that that really stems from my first teacher. He was. Uh, very committed to making sure that each of us left with the skills to write for voice because they're, uh, it's very difficult. It's, yeah, um, it to, is. <laughs> to write in a way that can convey the complexity of your ideas, but to uh, do so in a way that's comfortable for the singers. And so our very first project was uh, for just voice and piano. And we spent the entire first year of college working on that. And uh, I remember... <laughs> being extremely uncomfortable and so much so that we got to August which was you know about two weeks before classes started and I scrapped the whole thing and rewrote it same text same pianist and vocalists it was soprano and piano it was everything was the same it was going to be performed in September but I rewrote the whole thing um, and we wrote a vocal uh, an art song every single year as undergraduates Oh, wow. So I think my, my first one was uh, a Walt Whitman poem, Noiseless Patient Spider, um, which is still a very, it's very near and dear to my heart, that little song. I probably will publish it eventually um, as just a look back. But, um, uh, and then I moved on to Shakespeare, and I started discovering that some of the older poetry was so regular in rhythm and meter that I wasn't breaking out of my shell rhythmically or metrically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started playing with newer ideas, and um, that's uh, you know, kind of how I got into writing nonsense, o- operas and things like that. So uh, I also have a, an enormous competitive streak. And uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, one of the grad students wrote an opera, and I was so jealous that uh, they did that, and it seemed like this monumental task that could never be done that I decided to do it for my master's thesis. Uh, and, and the medium has really stuck with me. I then had some very close friends who were willing to perform whatever I put in front of them. Thank you. <laughs> Especially Quince. They've right. been remarkably receptive to my ideas, and it's been a wonderful relationship. I'm actually writing for them again right now. Oh, right now. And, what, what, uh, is that, what is that project going to be, if you can tell us? That is my third opera. Uh, it's called Immortal Games, 
and it is for four characters. Two women will be playing a chess game against one another, and two women will be the queens that are not only calling out battle moves on the chessboard, but they are uh, also kind of giving us the internal monologue of each of these women and why their relationship has become so very catty. Um, even though they're very intelligent businesswomen, there's women, there's, uh, there's still this edge to their relationship, a very competitive one. And, uh, and so the queens are giving us this, you know, nitty gritty of where that background came from and which boyfriends they fought over and which jobs they won over one another and how it's developed. So it's a fun, it's a fun opera. Um, I co-wrote the libretto with my husband, who's much more of a chess aficionado than I am. And I basically told him, I need a, a, a chess game where the white queen sacrifices herself. So I can have a death aria, and uh, and he found one, and you know we've done a good job, I think, to match up the drama of the player's story to the drama that's on the chessboard. And my my challenge right now is making the musical drama match those two. So you you actually found a, a specific, ch- like, an entire played out chess game. An entire played out chess game. It's called the Immortal Game. Uh, it is one of the most impressive games in history. It was played in the late 1800s in London between, I think, a Frenchman and a Russian. And uh, it was, it is called The Immortal Game and the opera is called Immortal Games, uh, since it's based on that one chess game, but also, you know, we will never stop being competitive with one another. And I think, I think that's going to be conveyed dramatically as well. I mean, opera has just always seemed, uh, almost I don't for whatever reason I think out of reach for me for for some reason so how how did you get how did you get pulled in and how how it just seems like such a monumental <laughs> piece or a, you know a monumental effort so how do you yeah how do you how do you get through that you know um I think that also goes back to you know about a little over 10 years ago I was an intern at Glimmer Glass Opera and as a music intern, uh, there were usually two of us, and one of us had to be present at every single rehearsal or performance uh, in case the musicians in the pit needed something or the, uh, the accompanist, uh, the rehearsal accompanist. And uh, so I saw a large amount of the rehearsal process, and um, every single opera I saw at least 20 times that summer. And the first one that was in rehearsals was... Uh, Lucie de Lamamore, the French version of, of Lucia. And uh, I, I realized how simple the story was, I think. And you can build this wonderful world of music around a boy meets girl, something terrible happens, uh, and it's either resolved in a comedy or it's not in a tragedy. And um, I got into story writing. It was always kind of something I was interested in anyways. It was never... Um, was never it seemed too far fetched for me, and uh, I I just like to play with it. I don't think of it as a as a monumental task anymore. I think I think of it as fun, uh, and so that that's kind of how I got started. Uh, the first opera I wrote was, as I said, my master's thesis, and that was forty five minutes long, and for an ensemble I think of thirteen performers and five vocalists. And so anything smaller than that seems to be rolling downhill, and that's what I have done since. Uh, my second opera was for the Atlanta Opera 
24-hour opera competition. Mm -hmm. That was three vocalists and a pianist, um, and that was that was quite easy. Um, other than the time constraint, write it in 12 hours. That was yeah, that, that, uh, <laughs> that seems like it's pretty intense, actually. <laughs> I had done other, um, you know, write a piece in 24-hour competitions and, and events. Uh, BGSU does something similar, and every once in a while I just challenge myself. If I'm in the middle of a big project, I like to shake everything loose in my brain by having a weekend where I just do a retreat on a smaller ensemble piece. Um, actually, I did the first one of those in the middle of my first opera. Uh, my professor told me to take a weekend off, and so I wrote a bassoon quartet, and that was that was not what she meant at all. <laughs> so, so you're, when you're working on this big piece, you you just decide, okay, well, I I need a break from this mm -hmm. huge piece. And I'm going to take that break by writing another piece of music. Yeah. Is that, yeah that's right? Of okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have other hobbies, but, um, I, you know, it's, it's, I don't have a dog, so I don't go walk a dog. It's, it's <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, you know, have some other projects that I work on quite regularly. So it's not like I need a huge vacation from writing. Writing is its own vacation if it's a different, uh, if it's a different environment. Um, so I think it's great to, break it up and get out of out of a huge project. So that's that's why I keep coming back to opera. I think and it's a you, lot of fun. And do you find that the the time that that 12 hour opera and you know taking a weekend that time constraint does that does that really push you to be more creative? I don't know whether creative is what I'm going for when I'm trying to take a short break like that. Um I think there, so much of my creative history, whether it be uh, writing or, you know, even sewing. I'm, I'm a huge fan of knitting and crochet and all those ridiculous uh, type of things that lower your blood pressure and make you relax. And, uh, but I have this huge history in my creative work of unfinished projects. I think we all do. Um, and I think a short challenge like that is not necessarily a a new idea it's not exploring something new I don't think you can do that in that short a period of time I think it's do what you do well and do it quickly so you have a double bar and you can feel success on some level so when you go back to this project that seems endless um, you feel a, a renewed sense of of confidence and I can do this coming yeah through. that's a good point about the double bar it does <laughs> it, it feels really good when you reach that Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so I guess you're saying is the the point of it is not necessarily to come up, maybe come up with the, the, like the next best thing. However, if that happens, great. But the it's point great. the point of it is more like a um, an I, I when I say exercise, I don't mean it in the term. Like, oh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go play this piano exercise. I mean it yeah. lit literally, like working out your compositional mm -hmm. muscles yes yeah I believe so I think so anyways um like I said when I'm trying to come up with the next creative step for me the next sound that is going to be what my work sound like uh I spend a lot of time on it it's it's not a small thing uh mm -hmm. you know I think one of my best known pieces is the body electric um right which I did multiple versions of and it is for vocalists and that piece was a result of my first opera. You know, my first opera had one character that spoke in nonsense, and I spent two years writing it. And at the end of that two years, I wrote this small vocal solo 
and it ended up being what I needed the opera to be. But it's only six minutes, and it's like a condensed version of what I was aiming for in the opera. So, you know, I, that is the type of idea that takes a long time to develop, and I never try and push that into a weekend. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So getting back to your piece, uh, Concealed Imaginings, um, you know, you were you just said that uh, with the body electric, you uh, you wrote nonsense, and with your current opera project, you're co-writing uh, the libretto. So uh, with with concealed imaginings, where does the text come from? Uh, the text from that comes from Wallace Stevens' Peter Quince at the Clavier poem, which is uh, one poem with four different segments. And I believe at the time Quince was looking for four different composers to set each one of these poems. And uh, so I took, I think, the first one. Can't quite remember that either. Um, and uh, for that, I kind of found four different actions that the main character of the poem, Susanna, took throughout the, um, throughout the course of the poem. She walked, she stopped, she sighed, and I turned those into kind of the four pillars of this poem, and whenever we get to one of those moments, there are a couple of chords, they're just long holds, and I use those as the five pillars that kind of hold up the piece. Uh, so we open with just the text from those five and a wavering um, harmony that's very light, it's very thin, and uh, get into the full poem. It's not that I abandoned nonsense uh, entirely for this, I did you know, kind of pull those out and make them contextually uh, freer from, from the vocal continuity uh, to make a strong opening.
so far, other than yourself as as a as a writer, you've mentioned Walt Walt Whitman, Shakespeare, and uh, Wallace Stevens. For the majority of these pieces, you've been writing for female female vocalists. So mm-hmm. can you can you talk about that that exchange? I guess maybe of of voice and gender from <laughs> from from the initial uh, writing of the words to the performance of the words. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's actually not something I had thought about. The prevalent number of poets uh, in the public domain are men for um, some very obvious reasons. Sure, but a lot of the sure. subjects of the poems and the plays are female. Um, and so while I don't think I'm capturing, I don't know that they captured the complete female essence. The Walt Whitman um, poem that I initially mentioned was the one about the spider, but the body electric actually takes poetry from Walt Whitman as well. Um, from his large poem, I sing the body electric. And it's just two lines from the poem that is about the female essence, the female person. Um, and that was, um, I am drawn by its breath as if I were no more than a helpless vapor. All falls aside but myself and it. Um, and so I, I thought this was just a very beautiful idea. I am drawn by its breath means that you, know, you have to be close enough to a person that you can feel their breath. So it's really that I'm writing about a man who is extremely attracted and very close to this person that he is in love with. And, uh, and that person melts him away. He's no more than a vapor. And, and so I, I like that idea. I, and I like to think that um, each one of us will find someone that is that attracted to us in life. And that's why I stole those, those two lines. Um, as I said, they ended up, you know, it doesn't exactly come across in the poem, but that was the main concept behind the whole piece, is that mm-hmm. we're just reduced to absurdity when we're completely that in love. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, yeah, I, I, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen quite so much in Concealed Imaginings. You know, this, Concealed Imaginings is about a woman um, who's completely independent uh, we don't hear about her love. We hear about her wanderlust, I think. And I think that's an, also an important part of, of at least my female essence is that I'd love to travel. I love to be swept up in what I'm doing. And uh, there are some beautiful lines in that poem about, uh, about the wind. The wind was like her maids and they are uh, fetching her woven scarves. And there's just some really uh, great ideas about being independent, but also uh, being very tied to your natural surroundings that I liked about that particular poem. What draws, what draws you to a particular text? Have you, I mean, I, of course, every, every text is different and mm-hmm. every, everything will, will have, have something for you to work with, but have you, have you been able to kind of pinpoint a a thing that that draws you to a text is it the style or the word choice or the the rhythm of the words or the i mean the economy of like have yeah. you been have you um i think it's usually the subject matter cuz i do quite a bit with um adapting it for my own rhythmic and metric sense pulling it into nonsense syllables and things like that. Um, but uh, I think the subject has to sweep me away because that is what I want to do with the audience with my music. Um, I, there was a really great 
critical article in the Washington Post a couple months ago about what contemporary opera should do. And I think it's the same with contemporary art song, and that is that the audience needs to fall in love. You have to either love or hate a piece um, of opera, of, of music. I think it's easy to do with vocal writing because there's uh, where some people are unfamiliar with contemporary music, if there's a text to follow, they can still kind of get swept up in that, and that can be a good gateway to other thornier pieces of music without text. So um, I think it has to be something where I feel completely drawn into it, and like I can live there for a couple months while I'm writing it um, in, in this fantasy land that it creates. So um, I do tend to favor, like I said, it's there's a lot of public domain works, but um, T.S. Eliot is also one of my favorites, E.E. E. Cummings. Uh, I would actually love to set um, Anyone Lived in a Pretty How Town. Mm -hmm. I'm going to write a piano piece instead because it's, I think, uh, I think it would be difficult to get permission from that estate. Uh, so I'm... <laughs> that's, but... always, that's always a, a big deal with, uh, with recently dead poets. Mm-hmm. It is. Or even, uh, you know, I did work in college with a poet. Um, uh, Rachel King is her name. She and I were in the same uh, level going through. She was an English major, and we collaborated um, as seniors. I wrote a piece called Rotting Shoelaces uh, based on her poetry, um, and still a very still a very strong piece, I think, very near and dear to my heart. And uh, after... It's actually a piece that hasn't been premiered yet uh, called The Unspoken, and we collaborated on that uh, to the point where we were you know, talking about by stanza using plosive consonances versus open vowels and, and uh, so that the poem progressed naturally through the stages of grief. Uh, we wrote it as a memorial to those who died at Virginia Tech, mm -hmm. uh, which happened that shooting at Virginia Tech, I believe, happened the, one of the last weeks we were on campus as seniors. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a very uh, alarming thing to happen on any college campus, but I think it hit us particularly hard because we were in the euphoria of about to graduate and go on to new and uh, exciting things. I had quite literally just gotten engaged, um, and so everything was warm and fuzzy and all right, sorts sure. of love and family going on. And, uh, and then to know that there were uh, people just like us being terrorized. Um, I, I locked my, I actually locked myself in my dorm room that day. I was so devastated by the events and they continue mass shootings, um, continue to be something that, uh, influence my work in some ways. And I did think a lot of people don't understand why someone with uh, as happy a uh, childhood and college experience and you know I'm a typical American 30 something year old woman and uh, and I don't think they quite understand why I tend towards the graphic and the devastating in my music and it's it's because these things happen and and there are people just like me going through them so I I tend to try to honor that emotion and write that into my music so uh now, now we're going to kind of switch gears and talk about your, actually your saxophone writing, um, which is another instrument that kind of makes appearances throughout, throughout your, uh, throughout your career. So uh, this piece crossed for a saxophone duet. Can you explain what you mean by the gestures, uh, the musical gestures being formed from the shapes and the sounds 
of the individual letters of the word crossed. Absolutely. Um, well, crossed yeah, kind of ties back to my love of Shakespeare. The word comes from the opening soliloquy from Romeo and Juliet, uh, and it's not the only piece that I'm taking one word from that soliloquy and, um, and kind of exploring the shape and the sound of, of not just the word, but the individual letters. So um, for crossed, since I had a duo, I thought it would be really interesting to uh, explore um, the different shape of each letter in arches and lines and things like that. So for example, the first, the very first gesture we hear is an arch and a valley occurring simultaneously. So the first saxophone player goes up and then down, the second saxophone player goes down and then up, and they're happening at the same time. They start, I believe, very close to the same pitch or right around. It's a very small interval, and when they come back to uh, the, the other side, you know, the descend and the ascend, right. um, it's a little further apart. The interval is a little bit more open. So if you can imagine that starting close together, ascending and descending at the same time and not coming quite close, uh, as close, it is shaped like a C. Um, uh, the next letter is R. I needed a hard line, um, which is impossible to do with just two instruments. So yeah. uh, I wrote a multiphonic for each of them. So it is a line from top to bottom. And then uh, the second saxophone player does a descending line for the lower, the, the descending slope of the R. And the, uh, the first saxophone player plays three short multiphonics that are very thin. So uh, they create the closed upper shape of the R. The O mm -hmm. goes back to the same type of gesture um, as the C, but instead of leaving it open on one end, we go all the way back to that opening interval. So we peak, valley, and come back uh, and close that, and so on and so forth. And are you, uh, I, I saw in the notes that you, there are six sections. There are six there sections. Are, and there are also six letters. So is each, is each section mm -hmm. a letter? Each section okay, is so, a letter. And okay. uh, the sounds that I tried to create in each of those sections are trying to kind of embody the sound of that letter. So for R, there's a lot of low growling, trilling, um, some very guttural sounds. Um, and for the, actually I include a very, very brief section for the apostrophe. Um, and I think it's one of the most fun because it's just a little whoop, 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 whoop. Um, and, right, and if you think yeah. about it, that's what an apostrophe should sound like. I mean, it's just a that's, little, that's what it is. Yeah. A little whip of a, of a shape. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I really tried to embody each of those, uh, within the section and it ended up being so much fun, uh, that I decided to do it in this next duo, uh, which, uh, may be premiered later this year. I'm working on a premiere for it, uh, for saxophone and bassoon. And so I've actually kind of thought through uh, a more linear progression of works, starting with crossed for two saxophones, moving to strife, which is the next one, which is first alto sax and bassoon. I believe I want to do another one, which is then for bassoon and bassoon. Um, so I'm kind of daisy chaining from piece to piece. They keep one instrument in common and change one out. Um, and then every other duo is for two of a similar instrument. So I'm, I'm, I, I would like to do it. Uh, we'll see. Both of those were commissions, uh, Crossed and Strife. Um, so it would be fun to see if I could, you know, 
kind of do a chain of commissions that are all Shakespearean monologue, single words. Because um, I think he, he has some really great uses of those words that are so intrinsically tied to specific emotions. Strife is not unclear. It's not one of those words where you hear it and you think of, of uh, you know, a soft emotion and a hard emotion. Strife just means it's, it's just tough. <laughs> crossed. Yeah, right. Um, was very, I also have some very specific feelings about, you know, you've crossed someone in the story. They are star-crossed lovers. It means you're in some form of trouble. So I like in taking out those individual words and, uh, and playing with their, the depth of their meaning.
you were you were mentioning multiphonics, which which leads me directly <laughs> into not only talking about your piece Transnosis, but also talking about your book. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's interesting that you um, that you're going that you're you know you start out with this two saxophone piece and then a saxophone and bassoon and then two bassoon and it 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 seems it just seems perfect actually. It's actually it's a very logical progression from uh, you know the first inspiration for the book uh, that I wrote, um, and uh, I I was inspired by Sofia Gubadalina's works for bassoon she has multiple she really uh she's one of my favorite composers for a number of reasons i think formally she's just got these rock solid ideas um and her pieces are never uh, not interesting they mean so much to me in that way um, because i i've heard the argument before that uh female composers don't know how to control large form we all saw the article that shouldn't be named again but is important to bring up because claiming that there are no female, uh, no good female composers is not okay. Um, we've had less time to make a bigger impression and that's uh, not, not a basis of evaluating all of our works. So I think Sofia Gubadalina is, if, if we only had one composer to refute the claim that, uh, that there are no good female composers, she can do it on her own. Um, I mean, that, yeah, that article was... <laughs> Oh my God! But it was it was unfounded. It made a lot of people angry, and I try not to dwell on it. Um, unfortunately, if those labels aren't there, then we tend to still sweep it under the rug and still uh, ignore the fact that you know, while it's a small percentage of the community, um, we're still here. And if if we don't bring it up and we don't keep fighting for a little while longer, anyways, um, then we don't get equal programming. Um, there's a lot of noise about uh, equal programming for orchestras, um, and it, it's interesting because the numbers are are not too far off if you're looking at the grand scheme of, of things. Right now, 15% of living composers are women, but if you look at all of, of human history, of recorded history, only 1% of composers mm -hmm. in history have been women. So if you compare that to the orchestral you know programming then we're, they're not too far off it's frustrating only 15 percent uh that is i believe what i saw in the last um round of census information which unfortunately groups us with music directors as well so we can't get as clear a picture but yes i've seen multiple sources cite us as 15 percent of the population so um, you know, I think a good rule of thumb is to try and approach that number. We're still quite far off, even with major organizations who who do fight for um, equality and do have you know female directors and programmers and things like that. Um, some people you know surpass it, uh, but some people don't. And I think it is important to keep those labels for now until we reach a point where we're not uh, we're not fighting for individual. Um, programming as much I don't know I've had very mixed sure. feelings about this my entire life um, because uh, I had a really great moment in undergrad where uh, you know I decided I decided that this wasn't going to be my entire fight I had to say something different artistically and I want my music to stand on its own legs but in order to do that, you know, people need to consider it equally. So I've gone back and forth. This is actually the first year. Um, 2016 will be the first year. One of my pieces is pro programmed on a festival that is entirely 
female composers. Um, right, I just I just saw that. Yeah, congratulations. I, thank you, thank you. I'm really excited to go, and I don't know um, a lot of the people there. I haven't um, I haven't ever been to one, and it's uh, not because I don't respect what they're doing. It's just I haven't quite decided if. Um, I hadn't quite decided if that's really where I wanted to spend my fight. You know, I spend a lot of time building up my business, making sure that my business has equality. We have, you know, there are nine of us in the collective. Uh, we also publish one other person's work. So uh, there are 10 people's works being distributed on Adjective and four of them are women. So we ex exceed that percentage that I hope that most people will strive for. So, um, so there's, there's. There's that essence, but um, but Gubadalina. So Sofia Gubadalina is one of my huge inspirations, and her bassoon works include a lot of beautiful multiphonics, and uh, and I was very frustrated when I started trying to learn her works because the resources on multiphonics were frustrating. <laughs> right, um, yeah, they they really are for for almost all instruments. It seems like for almost all instruments. But I uh, my first year of grad school, I had a great moment with. Uh, Burton Bierman, who was a comp professor at BGSU at the time, and uh, he was actually one of the clarinetists who helped test uh, for the Philip, Philip Rayfelt book um, on clarinet multiphonic, well, extended techniques, but it has a detailed section on, on multiphonics. And they had a small collection of clarinetists at University of Michigan who were testing all of these, and if it didn't work for someone, they threw it out. And so there's a much more limited number of multiphonics, uh, but it could it worked on a lot of people's instruments. Now the bassoon is a crazy instrument, and it if you read the history of how it developed, um, I, I joked with a saxophone player once that um, you know there was the, their instrument was developed and mine was developed from a branch of wood, you know, a long long time ago. And so we've got some quirkier things that happen. We have some companies that place tone holes slightly differently. There are different length bassoons. We have long bore, we have short bore. Um, so not everything is going to speak exactly the same way. So I grabbed a group of 20 bassoonists to test multiphonics for my piece, uh, for my book, to make sure that we had the most reliable set. Um, there's, it's still not perfect. There are still people who will thumb through it and not be able to play a few, um, but it is far more comprehensive than anything we've had before. Yeah, and actually, I mean, I, I'm coming at this from a little biased perspective perspective because I've <laughs> used it. Um, but, you know, when we were, when I was uh, uh, writing this piece that uh, used the multiphonics, um, I still, you know, we still had to go through, I think I chose about 30, mm -hmm. 30 multiphonics that I wanted my, my particular uh, player that for him to try. And we were, we were matching, uh, you know, we had the recordings that you posted mm -hmm. and we were trying to, trying to match the, like, how close is it going to be to the recording? Because that's what I was working on. Right. I mean, that's, that's another huge, <laughs> huge thing as a composer, you know, how do you, it's like, oh, I want a multiphonic, but I want it, I want it to be very specific and I want to, I want it to find the, the I want it to have these qualities. Like, yeah. And there, there just aren't that many good resources out there for the composition process. Not only the the notation process, mm -hmm. but the but the actual. I want to hear this mm -hmm. and make sure that it fits in with everything else I'm doing. So actually, the recordings were really helpful because we could not only check what his bassoon was going to do with the recordings, mm -hmm. but also, 
you know, for me to hear these and try to fit them into this into this dense texture that I was that I was writing anyway. So we we picked about thirty, and I think, um, I think about twenty worked on his bassoon, mm-hmm. and I think I only ended up using about six or seven. That's Just, a really great process to go through, though, and that's when I've worked with composers um, in the past um, on, on how to write for multiphonics. You know, that was before the book was published, and, and they could access the resource. But I still work directly with a lot of composers who email or call and say, "Okay, I want to do this thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. Is, is this thing going to sound like that in performance, though?" And the answer is, you know, it really depends on each individual bassoonist. What I tried to do with with the book was make sure that um, even pieces that were written in the past where the composer has notated a specific set of pitches, um, if that particular fingering doesn't work on your bassoon or produces a sound that is nowhere near what the composer is asking for, there's a couple of different ways you can seek uh, a multiphonic sound that is closer matched to it. So there's an appendix with um, you know the primary pitch from each of the multiphonic fingerings, and um, and actually we have a we have a really great picture from the launch party of that book of of Andrew, my husband, uh, holding up that page because he's so excited about the primary pitch <laughs> being listed right, for each yeah. one. And uh, Brad Bailier is a composer and bassoonist uh, in New York City, and he wrote a set of, of, um, of works that really highlight that. And he actually is able to play a very convincible Scottish jig in multiphonics because of oh that index. It's a very entertaining little recording. Um, and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so there's, there's a couple of things that that book does really well. Will we ever have a comprehensive set of multiphonics that work on every single bassoon? No. We have reached a point where um, there's more information on teaching bassoon than there ever has been before, and there's constantly really great new resources being being published for it. And so I'm not quite sure. Even some of the murkier areas of education are having a light shown on them. Like uh, there's a new book out about reed making and pedagogy that has been verbal for all all of human or all of bassoon history it's basically right. been um you know one teacher passes down their knowledge to the next person getting back to your interest in multiphonics and mm-hmm. of, i mean of course since you are a bassoonist you know uh it your research would tend to go towards a bassoon but mm-hmm. flipping it back to the saxophone yeah and and your piece transnosis um one of your adjectives is corrosive. Yes. And for this piece, I feel like it, it really speaks to, I think, the process that, that at least as a listener, I perceived. So I felt like there was a kind of sonic deconstruction occurring mm-hmm. over the course of the piece that eventually evolves or devolves into multiphonics yes yeah is that is was that an actual process or just something that i perceived uh no i think i think that's a very fair evaluation um transnosis to me i i I really had a struggle to find the title for this and and i don't think i've said this yet but titles are some of the most important elements of the writing process i feel that um i can have some melodic ideas, harmonic ideas. I can have sketches, 
Um, but until I find a title that kind of sums up everything that those sketches represent, I feel a little lost in the writing process. So um, and this, this also kind of lends back towards my literary, um, my literary adjective because I really do find that words mean so much to my writing. Um, so I struggled with the title for this one though because I was looking for something that described um, that which we can barely perceive. So if, you're, um, if you sense danger as a, as a human, it's because of the combination of senses that your perceptions are kind of working together. But what if you know you only have one and it's extremely limited, like standing in the dark at night and there's barely enough light to sense that there is motion, but you can't hear anything and you, uh, and the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up, but you can't tell why. That's what transnosis is about, is, is the limiting of perception um, to just the bare minimum and uh, working with uh, what lies at the end of that, that spectrum of perspective. So transnosis uh, ended up being a very odd title for me. Trans being to move uh, through perception, which gnosis is, is um, an older word for perception. So transnosis being to move throughout the spectrum of your perceptions. And so what I wanted to do with this piece was, um, there, there is melody there, but I have obscured it so much that you're, you get little, little glimpses of it um, and, and you kind of have to strain and stretch and sit on the edge of your seat trying to perceive where that melody is. I have some uh, moments where the harmony is a lot louder than the melody, so you can hear the movement um, of one saxophone, but because it's happening in conjunction with the harmony so closely, it's hard to hear it. Um, there is a section where you can't tell which one is the primary melody because they're all playing um, ideas that could be perceived as melodic, but they're doing it with no sense of rhythm or, t or, or meter. They're all in, in, in aleatory. And so you can't tell which is which. And that is what devolves eventually into the end where we get the wall of multiphonics, as it has been called, um, where they just keep disrupting. The Phil, this... the Phil Spector of multiphonics. <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh, where they, it starts with one who's uh, kind of just hanging out by himself, playing a multiphonic every, uh, every so often, and they build into this great, dense, intense multiphonic, uh, which uh, at the end eventually just overpowers the melodic instrument. And uh, the, it ends with a seven-second hold on this one, <laughs> which I think is beautiful. Some people don't love multiphonics, and that's okay. Um, but they definitely served their their purpose in this piece. Well, yeah, I think I think you know the the piece for me. It what you were saying about you know the hairs on the back of your neck standing up and you don't know why or something like that. It really creates a sense of danger. Oh, cool. Thank you. I'm, I, I don't think I had thought about it that way, but yeah, there's, there's, there should be. <laughs> right. Because there, uh, I mean, there's this, there is this abrasive sound. It's not a, it's not a bad sound. It's actually a really interesting sound, but it is abrasive mm -hmm. compared to the rest of the piece. And it, you, you find yourself as you're listening, whether you, whether you notice it or not, like your shoulders start to go up and, <laughs> yeah. you know, your, your breathing gets a little bit more fast. So I think like, even if, 
even if people aren't really conscious of that, they are experiencing the your intention for the piece. That is, that is one of um, the things that my favorite writers do all the time. Ian McEwan is uh, my favorite British author, and he might just be my favorite author, um, and he writes incredibly dark and aggressive uh, stories sometimes. He wrote Atonement, uh, that, that was turned into a movie with uh, Cara Knightley, um, and it's, it's about a simple misunderstanding um, that ruins several people's lives, and it can right. just be this one spark of a moment uh, that changes everything. And uh, I had just read the book Saturday before I wrote Transnosis. This is one of his more recent ones. And it is about a man experiencing one, one day. It's from the time he wakes up till the time he goes to bed. And uh, in the middle of it, there's a home invasion. And actually, towards the end, there's a home invasion. He's at home with his family. His daughter is home from college. And um, the invaders are making the family watch while uh, they start to do horrible things. And there's a moment where I felt so aggressively defensive about this character that I barely knew. She had only been in one chapter before. But I mm -hmm. felt like I needed to leap onto the pages and protect her. My heart was going. I was angry. And it was like 2 a.m. on a Friday night, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> and I, I stopped and I had a moment and I thought, I want my music to be able to do this. I want yeah. to be able to, to change someone's emotions because he had to know in writing this scene that he was going to be controlling the reader's heart, heart rate. I mean, something is, as simple as our metabolic rate that exists completely outside of our reading. He, he manipulated that. And I thought, what an amazing thing to accomplish he has no idea who I am or where or when I'll be reading this, but he was able to manipulate how I am um, experiencing life at this very moment. And so I think right. music, music may even have a greater capacity to do that than the written word in some cases because we can physically influence uh, the air around uh, a person. I, I know that there are some finale movements of great symphonies where the Ensemble is playing so loud that it can't, you can't help but feel that in, in oh, your yeah. being. Um, but to do that with a smaller piece, you know, you have to be crafty. And I definitely lean towards smaller pieces. So I'm really glad that you said that because that was, that was one of the main uh, ideas behind the piece was, was affecting how uh, we're emotionally experiencing the music.
In a certain way, I think all art is trying to control or at least not maybe not control, but at least affect our experience. Mm -hmm. And do you find that as we go further in history, does do we have to go more to the extremes for art to be affecting us? I don't know uh, whether we have to go more to the extremes. I think we definitely um, have to focus on on what individual thing we're trying to affect. Um, so I, for me, most pieces are based on a single feeling or emotion or concept. Um, but you know, I've also spoken to composers who really, really don't think about it all that much. They just want to write pieces that. Uh, are fun and get played or they're pretty and there's nothing wrong with those either. I'm also a huge fan of Arvo Pert um, and you know my favorite piece of his I listen to when I'm trying not to get angry at people in the car um, <laughs> or at work. Uh, you know I actually last year I had some office mates who found it just delightfully fun that they knew exactly how to calm me down after a confrontation uh, and that was just to play Spiegel I'm Spiegel which is his, uh, I, I like the cello and piano version, um, but it's just a very calming piece. And they could play that, and I'd be like, all right, thank you. Yes, thank you for the reminder. Ar I must calm Ar down. <laughs> Ar Arvo Peretz is your uh, your music for airports for the car, <laughs> right? I, I mean, I, I think it's too pretty to bring it down that far. I don't know, but... <laughs> oh, whoa! I, I don't okay. know. I don't know. I don't find it boring. I find it um, intellectually stimulating at the same time as very calming. And I don't yeah. think that uh, when when airports are thinking about what to play through the speakers, they're necessarily thinking about, about that, but... Um... Oh, no, no, no. I meant Brian Eno's music for airports. Oh, I haven't heard that piece. I'm sorry. Oh, no, should... I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, it's... I, I, it was, uh, it was meant to be pumped into airport. I mean, because airports are so like, 
ah, yeah. you know, all the time. And I'm and I'm gonna go to one tomorrow tomorrow morning. So <laughs> I might be listening to it on the way. But yeah. Yeah. It's just it's just really. I mean, it's really chill and it's, yeah, it's nice. It, okay, so in that case, then yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. No, and I definitely use I, I use pop music too in the car to calm myself down. I actually had. A playlist at one point when I was doing a lot of commuting it was like it was it was 50 miles a day but it was through always through heavy construction uh, I had one list that lasted exactly the length of the car ride mm. that I had to play every day to just keep myself from screaming at people I was I was not in a position uh, in my job where if I got caught screaming at someone that I <laughs> had some influence over where I wouldn't be in trouble so <laughs> Yeah, like uh, when when I was doing my studying for my comprehensive exams and also doing my uh, uh, my dissertation, especially the the notation of the dissertation yes. uh, piece piece for orchestra, I had a playlist just called. I took Steve Reich's, uh, not Steve Reich. Uh, I took John Cage's uh, <laughs> quote to sober and quiet the mind, mm-hmm. and that's not his. That's that's anyway. Mine was called. Mine was called calm the bleep down. Calm the bleep down. Yep. <laughs> That's great. Oh, yeah. So, so, so I, I think uh, I want to just end with, with a question. How did you come to music as something that you knew that you wanted to pursue for your life? That's a big I, question. It is. It's but... a huge question. Um, it slowly found me, um, kind of. I mean, my there were instruments in... There was an organ in my grandparents' house, which I was constantly obsessed with. Then uh, I wanted to learn how to read music. Um, my mom had a clarinet that hung out in my closet until I was, you know, fourth grade, and that was the beginning of band. Um, and uh, I switched over to bassoon by sixth grade because I was not a great clarinetist. Which, uh, since my husband is a great clarinetist, he, <laughs> I find he it a, a fun moment. Uh, but I was, you know, middle of the back of the third clarinets, and, and, <laughs> and I didn't find that inspiring. So uh, I wanted to play the oboe, and they had somebody for that already. So they said, you're tall enough to play the bassoon, which is funny, because I don't think I've grown an inch since. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I started playing this instrument and fell in love with it. Um, there was you must you must be this high to play the bassoon. <laughs> Pretty much, and you know, thinking back, I've started students now that are sixth graders, and I'm like, how did I just like the first year is a struggle to just keep your hands on the instrument, right. and they have this, I call it the sixth grade death grip because they're so scared it's gonna fall because it's as you know nearly as tall as they are. Right. Um, but the bassoon really led to some wonderful opportunities. I was in the Syracuse Symphony Youth Orchestra, and uh, I studied with the principal bassoonist for Syracuse Symphony at the time was uh, Greg Quick, and I loved lessons with him. There's still um, there are still things I rely on that he said to me in those lessons years ago that I teach my students or that I call on on a daily basis as I'm I'm working, and uh, he was a great inspiration to to that this would be a really awesome life. And um, I remember when uh, I was choosing to audition and performance, he said, I want you to have something else that's, you know, I want you to consider. You're going to be a good bassoonist, but I want you to consider some more stability. And I came back, I think, two weeks later and said, I'm going to be a composer too. And he said, that's not what I meant. 
<laughs> that is not what I meant. Not at all. I meant like a lawyer or an accountant or something like that. <laughs> I think I think he was an education major um, and yeah. and went on to be a professional performer. But I, he may have meant that. But I knew myself well enough to know that uh, there are people with far greater passion for teaching, um, at least in the at the middle school, high school level. I love teaching college, right. um, but uh, but I knew that education as a degree wasn't wasn't exactly what was going to suit my personality best. I mean, I, I, come on, I have a playlist called called Calm the Bleep Down. I'm right. not I'm not good with the little ones and being appropriate around. The, not uh, good with, with the wee cherubs. Yeah. <laughs> At least not in, in, in big groups. So I knew that education right. was not exactly where I wanted to go. And I had an affinity for arranging. I had written a couple of silly little songs um, and I'm I was almost constantly singing which is something I didn't notice about myself um, until a few sweet mates pointed it out in in undergrad that there's a song for everything even if it's just getting flour out of the kitchen cabinet um, I, and so <laughs> do, do you do you sing narrate your life is I, that... I I think I've gotten away from it as much as I did then because um, someone pointed it out to you but but if if no one had ever ever intervened you might be singing this interview right now uh, <laughs> maybe yes it would be like you know one of those one of those silly movies <laughs> yeah because <laughs> I mean I... Uh, people who just break out into song but you know there it's not like I sing everything but if uh, no 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 because then... I do I do that too do you like, yeah yeah I do that too and ca- and I have a lot of really really dumb songs mm-hmm. about my dog and about my cat. <laughs> And I'm starting to write a lot of dumb songs about my daughter. So, and, you know, some of them she likes and some of them they get the, oh, daddy, no. <laughs> um, well, you know, actually, after it was pointed out to me that I do that quite frequently, I was, I had thought all the way back to even as an elementary kid, uh, I sang to school the whole bus ride and the whole bus ride back to keep myself from getting um, nauseous, nauseated. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I do it on airplanes all the time time now I hum if I'm starting to get nauseated because that is supposed to affect it's supposed to balance I think your internal pressure a little bit better with your external at least that's what I've read don't I don't ask me to quote where I read that I can't remember but um I've always kind of yeah had something with that 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 has helped so I wrote some of them down as a kid, and then when I started exploring what I was going to do with my life, I tried my hand at arranging and had a lot of fun in high school with that. And um, I really didn't start writing much uh, before I started college. I applied to be a composition major with very few pieces under my belt. Right. Um, and uh, and then, you know, kind of took off from there, but I can't imagine life any differently now. Uh, and I really do feel a need to to write almost every day, even when I've burned out on, on, um, on things and <laughs> doing, I did two master's degrees almost simultaneously. I, I did both of them over the course of three years. Um, and it was really just the third year that everything was intensely at the same time. And I yeah, had yeah. doctoral auditions, uh, a month before my opera premiere, which was a month before my, uh, my recital, my master's recital. And it had entirely different rep than my DMA audition. So, um, that set of cu- a couple months really did, uh, exhaust me in, in a way that I didn't think I was going to remove myself from the couch ever again. You know, when I finally emerged from that that kind of doom and gloom, I uh, started composing before I started playing bassoon again. 
um, and I found that to be uh, restorative rather than than uh, further anxiety inducing. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's that's kind of how I led there. It was a little thorny, tangly path, but here I am.